What do you do when an over-the-counter medication you've depended on for years suddenly disappears? Or what happens when suddenly your medication disappears and the only available option is one where the price has skyrocketed by 500%? These aren't exaggerations, but realities that millions of Americans face all across the nation. What's the reason for these drastic pharmaceutical changes? Is healthcare even making improvements, or are they quote-unquote fixing what's not broken? Stay tuned to discover more about the twisted world of pharmaceuticals. As hefty of a chapter as this is, we'll only be scratching the surface of a world in itself, the world of pharmaceuticals. Consider the drug maker Warner Chilcott. Around 2009, after obtaining rights to a drug called Asacol, which was about to expire from the market, Warner Chilcott rebranded it as Asacol HD and boasted of a new product alongside it called Delzacol. These new medications cause problems for people like Miss M, who used to get her generic Asacol without a copay. Asacol HD wasn't covered. Others complained, too, about how hard it was to swallow this bulky, gel-coated Delzacol. The author tells us that not only did some people defecate the entire pill whole, but that one man, frustrated with trying to swallow such a thickly coated pill, peeled off the gel coating only to find that the pill was the original acicle that had been taken off the market. Meanwhile, Miss M became desperate and even ordered medications from other countries. All the while, drug makers battled each other to turn profits on their ulcerative colitis medications like acicol and mesalamine, sometimes buying each other out, suing each other, or selling their businesses. All this caused big-time delays in medicine production, while those with a product on the market raised their prices drastically. The book shows that Miss M's original drug price bounced all over the place between 2014 to 2015. One month the cost was $230, another month it was $49, and then again from $167 all the way to $775. The book even notes that within the 10-year span of Miss M's use of the drug, the brand version was even at $1,200 per month. This is why Rosenthal comes to the conclusion with two healthcare rules. Rule number six. More competitors vying for business doesn't mean better prices. It can drive prices up, not down. And rule number four, as technologies age, prices can rise rather than fall. Former United States Senator and one of the signers of the Constitution, Rufus King, once said, just as love makes you blind, so does wealth. And of the two blindnesses, wealth is the worst because of the incalculable harm it is able to do to people other than yourself. Unfortunately, the pharmaceutical web gets darker, and it's due to thinking about profit rather than people, wealth rather than well-being. Maybe you're familiar with this next story. It's most famously titled, the sulfonilamide disaster of 1937. While the FDA was just entering its 30s, 
Rosenthal says there wasn't much testing on drugs before they were marketed. So when the antibiotic known as sulfanilamide, which was originally given to patients in pill and powder form, was decided that it could turn a profit if sold in liquid form and given a raspberry flavor, its contents were overlooked. Very sadly, it turns out that the medication was combined with diethylene glycol, more famously known today as antifreeze solvent. After being administered around the United States, more than 100 people died across 15 states. Dr. A.S. Calhoun, one of the doctors who prescribed sulfanilamide to his patients, gives a haunting reflection that still lingers today. To realize that six human beings, all of them my patients, one of them my best friend, are dead because they took medicine that I prescribed for them innocently, and to realize that that medicine, which I had used for years in such cases, suddenly had become a deadly poison in its newest and most modern form, as recommended by a great and reputable pharmaceutical firm in Tennessee. Well, that realization has given me such days and nights of mental and spiritual agony as I did not believe a human being could undergo and survive. I have known hours when death for me would be a welcome relief from this agony. From then on, some laws were passed and the FDA became the big regulator to determine whether or not a drug was safe before it could hit the market. In the past, since so many different hands were involved in the financial backing, creation, and manufacturing of a drug, patenting seemed virtually impossible. But as competition grew and money became the name of the game, really valuable generic drugs can rack up anywhere between 5 to 12 patents. Rosenthal says patents can be made on the molecules making up a drug and even on the processes that go into its creation. But that's not all. As market competition intensifies, so do what are called patent plays. Patent plays are different strategies companies use in order to get a leg up on getting their own generic drug on the market. Rosenthal gives us at least five of these strategies. Let's take a closer look at each of them. One strategy companies use to compete with others in the drug manufacturing world is to sue each other. But just how is this an effective marketing strategy? It turns out, by suing or objecting to being sued, your product can stay on the market much longer than normal. Let's piece this apart. First of all, the book explains that with a little bit of persistence, it is relatively easy to get a weak patent on a drug, but a weak patent runs the risk of eventually being overturned. This is perhaps why companies get a handful of patents on their drug. Secondly, these patents can cover the broadest to the most tedious of things. Some patents cover the name of the drug, some the steps to make the drug, while others can cover the specific molecules that make up the drug. Now, the unbiblical principle in the drug manufacturing world is that there is a time to reap and a time to sue.
When suing season comes around, a brand name drug may sue a generic brand with all kinds of accusations, perhaps that the generic brand went against one of the brand name's patents. Or the generic brand might sue the brand name for unlawful practices or breaking their own patents. But beneath this facade of lawful objections is the real culprit. In 1984, a law was passed called the Hatch-Waxman Act, which causes a 30-month waiting period when someone sues. In other words, it's not uncommon for a drug patent to be on the verge of expiration or taken off the market, and so they file a lawsuit and get more market time on the shelf, at least two years worth. Let's go through one more example in this episode. Of course, we've already seen how the thickly coated Delzacol pill was just an old pill taken off the market and repackaged. These white lie modifications that are marketed as new and improved products may just be old drugs with a new name. Birth control is picked on here, since there are so many options available with just slight variations between them all. This modification strategy also correlates to the previous one mentioned. If a brand name drug maker can keep modifying its own drug, Rosenthal clarifies that generic drug makers will have a difficult time figuring out how to replicate the brand name one, especially since generic drugs have to be made with the same dosage and form as the brand name in order to make it to the market. Therefore, the more expensive brand name might stay on the market without any competing generics for a longer than expected time. As we said before, the pharmaceutical world is a world in itself. It has a complicated web of stories and lawsuits, but at the end of the day, is it much different than what we've been looking at in previous episodes? Just like insurance or hospital bills, we can make a pretty sure bet that it's all about the money. Patients are pushed to the side and patents are brought to the front of the line. Stay tuned for our next episode, which will cover more patent play strategies.